Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a serial founder, you know, the journey that he has. I mean, it's remarkable, building, scaling, exiting, I mean, you name it, everything in between. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Sam Said. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So originally born in a small town in England, a place called York. So how was how was life growing up there? Well, it's a beautiful town, but I didn't live there for very long. My family moved around Europe and the Middle East when I was younger and eventually settled in Canada before I made my way here to the United States. So I remember it being picturesque and a beautiful place, but not, not much more than that. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that obviously you were moving around. Your father was a traveling professor, but I'm sure that, you know, the the moving and jumping from one place to another, you know, perhaps it... Uh, it shaped you a little bit more no, as a person and maybe to be okay or dealing a little bit better with uncertainty and with new grounds. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's actually true. You know, you, you, you made friends, you had to change friends, you had to make new friends, you had to get used to different systems, different ways of doing things. So, you know, I think it was, it was great worldly experience to collect at a young age. So I don't know directly how much it, it, it helps, but I'm sure it did. So how was that time where Thanks to your father, you got into computers. You got your first computer. I mean, how was that like? My father, he's an electrical engineer. Actually, back in the day when people built computers, he used to build his own computer. So he had a fascination with them and felt like they would be very important in the future when we were kids growing up. So, yeah, he would he would essentially borrow, I think it was like a Mac 512 from work, bring it home. And then me and my brother would fight over who got to you know use it, play games on it. Eventually, I think the first the thing that got me into computer programming in Apple Basic at the time was I, I wanted to lock out my brother from getting access to the computer so that I could use it more. So I wrote I wrote a program, <laughs> which at the time he's going to hate me if I say the name, but it was called Loxie Lockout. That's because he had curly hair and I had straight hair, and so I jokingly made the Loxie Lockout version one that oh anyway um, it was a, it was a great experience, and then I realized the power of computers from there on out. So what, what, what was it about computers that really got you hooked? I mean, what, what was so amazing about it? I think it was the, the freedom to create things. Like, you know, it was the first time you could make the rules, you could build something. And it was this incredible feeling of, of creativity and learning something that was an entirely different way of thinking. And so, you know, it was, and at the time, you know, stuff was changing so rapidly that it was, there's, 
was so dynamic. And, and most people didn't know it, know much about computers at the time. So you felt like you had some special knowledge or some special power that nobody else had. And in, in this case, obviously, I mean, you turned 14 and a really interesting event happens. I mean, when I was 14, I, I was playing PlayStation and just enjoying life. I mean, in this case, not only you enjoy, were you enjoying life, but then at the same time, you got your first job offer. I mean, how unbelievable is that? Yeah, so I was definitely also enjoying PlayStation at that time. <laughs> the, the funny part of that story is I did get a, I got an offer as a computer programmer, and that was my first experience, real professional experience, you know, actually getting to do what I had just done for fun in a real work environment and get, getting paid a lot more than my friends who were, who were bagging groceries. But the ironic thing was I actually tried to get a job as a grocery bagger, and they just wouldn't hire me. So somehow I, they managed to hire me as a programmer, but I wasn't good at bagging groceries, apparently. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so in this case, obviously, you continue to develop, you know, that love for computers, and then eventually that got you into university where you studied physics and engineering, and that was the nice segue to perhaps thinking, you know, that you could create something of your own yourself. So, how was that transition like? You know, I was so into programming and computer science when I was younger that when I went to college, to university, I wanted to study something different, which was, uh, you know, I I had started to really like physics and. I didn't know as much about electrical engineering at the time. And so I felt that's what I wanted to study that, you know, eventually took me to land me a job as a photonics engineer, which was super cool because it was building, you know, working on all the fiber optic components that power the backbone of the internet. And that was a great experience. But that experience was also in a really large, you know, Fortune 100 crazy big company, which, you know, taught me two things. One, I liked the work a lot, but two, I did not like the environment. And so, you know, after a couple, two and a half years there, decided it was time to go back to my roots of software and, and, and start my first company. So tell us about that process. Yeah. And that was really because I wanted, what I wanted more than anything else was to, to work with people who, for lack of a better term, really gave a shit about what they were doing. And, you know, I felt like they had purpose and that they were building something and that you had this really like you know, united, aligned, purposeful team of people you loved working with that you could spend 12, 14 hours a day, you know, trying to, to build something new, different, and do that in a real way where people are just so committed and passionate about the work. I just didn't find that in a large organization, right? Large organization, there's a lot of people who are punching the clock nine to five, working on cool things, but, you know, it didn't really matter to them at the end of the day. And so that was for someone who had been a hobbyist, you know, super passionate about stuff I built. It just didn't fit with me. So then let's talk about building option. Yeah. So, I mean, look, we started, when I left, we worked on a lot of different ideas. We eventually landed on this company idea of um, early on option, which was essentially a, 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 what we called at the time a stream data mining framework, which was really a big data AI play on, you know, helping large companies. So the ones that I didn't like working for, I was happy to consult for. And so we would work with them on you know, how to turn their data into, to store their data efficiently in terms of a storage and retrieval mechanism, and then turn that from, you know, just data they used to otherwise dump in an Oracle rack at the time into really, you know, actionable insights and information. And so this was really early pre-cloud, even before Amazon cloud. And so, you know, we had to build our own big data stack and all of our own, you know, ML um, tooling. It was really fun work and really stimulating to actually use advanced technology to help, you know, these companies become more successful. So that company, you know, we, we built it and uh, I eventually took my leave, but the company is very successful, it's profitable, and, and my partner is still the CEO there today. So then what happened next? So what happened next is I went 
and started this company 360PI, which we had incubated, and we became the market leader in a new, totally new field, again, applying AI and data, but to retail, to e-commerce and online, in a field called retail uh, price intelligence and retail product intelligence, which was, which was about helping people who are selling product online optimize pricing, figure out how to maximize profits, understand what their competitors were doing. Um, you know, really looking into demand signals and, and using AI to predict uh, the right way to dynamically adjust inventory and pricing. We, like I mentioned, we became luckily the, the we were the innovators in that space early. Became the market leader. Essentially, eventually, we sold that company to uh, part of a Vista Equity roll-up to a Vista Equity portfolio company called MarketTrap, and it was a very successful exit for everybody. You know, you guys were dealing with with an industry that was being created that was getting a lot of hype. Uh, and I'm sure that here also you had you you guys raised a couple of million bucks, but you were able to really see the full cycle of the business. And I think that perhaps also identify perhaps for your next venture or your next ventures to come, the uh, essence of timing in the market. Because I think that here you guys were riding that wave that was being created. I mean, did you learn what did you learn about timing with this? It's a great question. Let me answer the timing question, and then maybe there's one more thing to go back to. So that was a company that, you know, 360PI, I think we came out at the right time. It was my first real experience raising venture capital. So we did that. But the timing point is a great one. What I realized from that and, and subsequently at my next venture was, you know, technology and technology trends are like a tsunami, right? They're just a big wave that's coming. And it is much easier to try and, like, use the momentum of that and go with the flow than try to go against it. And so, you know, a lot of people, when we started out, we were early enough on cloud that you're like, oh, you know, maybe this didn't make sense. But, you know, with every passing day, not only were we building product that was getting better, but the whole industry was shifting behind us. And so, you know, being there to, to ride those waves and betting on technology as opposed to betting against technology, I think was an important lesson we learned there. And, and, and so those trends are really important, you know, when you're thinking about what you're working on. How do I bet on technology trends that maybe haven't happened yet or are about to happen? Yeah, I think early on people felt, you know, betting on cloud and AI, those were, were you know, rinky-dink technologies. They weren't things that were going to change how an enterprise operated. And, you know, so early on, we, we felt very strongly about the potential. And we just had to believe that, right? And we had to believe it from first principles because we understood it. And, you know, we built for a world we where we thought the world was going to go. and we just held that conviction and built towards it and you know we weren't always 100% right but having that momentum behind us allowed us to really accelerate as things were shifting as the industry moved towards true cloud adoption true use of ai and advanced algorithms so i think that was that was a lesson we learned that we we picked we bet on technology early when it was unclear if it was really going to be something like a sea change but riding that wave when it does become a sea change is like incredibly powerful in terms of the momentum you get and it seems that the conviction, you know, it's a, it's a big one because it's like being in a, in a completely dark room looking for the switch and all of a sudden you hit the switch and, and everything is working just amazing. So, so how did you guys form, I mean, how did that strong conviction to keep moving to building where things are still uncertain, where maybe the market is not there yet, how did you form that strong conviction to, to get you guys to push and move forward? Yeah, I think it's two things. One is... I've always taken the view that you want to think of what the world is going to be like 10 years in the future and say, like, what's going to be different in 10 years? What if, what if this trend or that trend really plays out? What, is, what, do you, what would be, if we were doing something in that 10-year horizon 
from scratch, would we do it the way we did it today? Or with these benefit of these new technologies, would we do it differently? Right. And so really taking that long-term view of worldview of where the world may go, using that to anchor the long-term direction, pairing that with real tangible, like in the trenches, what do you feel when you do it today? Do you feel like it's more productive? Like you're doing something that could be better that like, if you, you asked yourself, Hey, if I was ever going to do this myself, would, would I do it the way people are doing it now? Or would I, would this new way actually be better? And maybe it's not everything you want it to be, but that tangible feeling of why that improving something, making it better today, that technology improvement, you know, knowing that there's, there's some essence of that, even in the moment, the present moment, and then coupling that with a view that this is really going to be world changing 10 years from now, and trying to get that, you know, iterate that enough times that you get sort of that conviction that the world, there's a good chance that the world and the industry may shift towards the view you hold, and that you just start building towards that as fast as you can um, early. And I mean, you'll know if you're wrong, because then within two, three years, it'll have gone a different direction. But if you're right, you'll have a two to three year head, head start on everybody else. Very cool. And in this case, after the experience with 360PI, which I think was obviously a, a great one for you, where you saw that, that full cycle, then you go into Singularity University, which obviously was a pivotal moment in your entrepreneurial journey. And that was the time where you started to really perhaps incubate and, and that nice segue into your latest baby, which is Get Around. So, so tell us about this. Yeah, I mean, Get, Get Around is another great example of a company where we were looking very long term, right? We looked at the world um, as it stood in 2009. And you had a setup where, you know, take the United States, 250 million passenger vehicles. We use those cars four or 5% of the day. And so we're wasting billions of car hours every single day of assets just underutilized sitting around. Actually, when you do the math globally, we're wasting 30 billion car hours every day. And so we felt that, you know, we're sitting in a world where this thing was very inefficient. And yet we had stuff like the iPhone, which was creating pervasive connectivity and real-time location that everyone was carrying in their pocket. And so we thought, well, geez, you know, if, we, if data and connectivity coming to the phone will change how people use those devices, can we, can we ride that wave? to make it more easier and more efficient for people to share these assets that are just otherwise sitting around. Because the, you know what we're doing, is there's no way it's efficient. There's no fleet running at 4% efficiency that's not going to go out of business. And that was sort of like what we felt in the moment. And then, of course, looking out 10 years, we're like, well, geez, we believe that data and connectivity and intelligence and software will come to the, to the vehicle, to the car, the same way you know, transform, was transforming the phone and before the phone, transforming the laptop and the PC. And so really bet on this world of, of data and connectivity, both in the phone that you keep in your pocket, in the car, becoming so real that it would be, it, that technology would allow us to share and rent out vehicles um, in much more efficient and much more intelligent ways. And that was essentially the, the thesis, the, the long world view and the present feeling we had. And, and the way we, we did that is we actually built some prototypes. We, we essentially digitized the car key and made it an iPhone app and went around showing people how cool it would be to just press a button on your phone and have your car doors pop open, you know, 10 milliseconds later, which was radical in 2009, maybe not so much today. Um, and then explain that like all this world of data and connectivity is going to make it so that we have so much information about cars and how people are using them and where they are that it doesn't not going to make sense for everybody to own a vehicle and plop it down 23 hours out of the day. 
So this actually leads me to to my next question, and that is obviously here you you needed to deal with rejection because once you have the thesis, it's all about you know getting out there and and really building this thing and and bring it to life. In this case, obviously this was before the Airbnb days where people were a little bit easier with the with the sharing, you know, kind of like uh, your own stuff. Uh, and and you were dealing with software, hardware, and then also the component of of insurance. So. Tell us about the 99% rejection that you needed to deal with in order to really bring this thing to life. Yeah, so when so we started this and we said, okay, data and connectivity is fundamental. What we really want is you should just feel like pull up your phone, press a button on our app, you know, find a car, unlock the doors and drive away, and you should be able to do that in 60 seconds, right? So our idea was how do we make it so that you can be gone in 60 seconds, you know, no pun, or pun intended, paying homage to a, you know, a classical Nicholas Cage movie. And what that meant was really three things. First, we had to build not just software. We needed to build both software and hardware because, again, we needed to find a way to, to push connectivity into the vehicle themselves. And most cars were pretty dumb. The smartphone was a real thing, but we didn't have the equivalent sort of connected smart car. So we had to build that hardware and that connected car infrastructure. So that was a hardware software thing we had to do. So never had built hardware really in a, in a startup company before. So that was new. Second thing we had to do was um, convince people that they were going to share their cars, which again, you know, it's pre-Airbnb was a crazy radical idea for most people we ever pitched to. And then the third crazy thing is we had to convince insurers and an insurance company to actually underwrite this activity of people sharing cars, which had never been done before. And so the reality was all of those things were really hard. And it meant that for the, for even as an example on the insurance front for the first 15 months, you know, we basically went and talked to a hundred insurance company and got rejected by 99 of them. And it was, was really this long period where we just had to believe that this could happen. And it felt like you said, there was like a light switch was off and we just hadn't toggled it on yet until finally we, you know, found one insurance partner that said, okay, we hear your story. We think it could work. We'll give you three months of insurance to prove that this is a real thing. And so then we all went from, you know, banging our heads against the wall for almost a year and a half to having to scramble, launch some sort of alpha beta product to prove that people would eventually share cars, which, which we ended up doing, you know, we, ended, we didn't end up getting three months of data, but we did get two. We had, it took us about four or five weeks to get into market. And, um, and we managed to do that in a way where we got a little bit of buzz and a few people renting uh, an early Tesla. And uh, that was good enough to convince the insurance company that they should give us another year to really build this out in, 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 a, in a bigger way. Nice. And obviously then it was all figuring out distribution and, and getting out there with a bang. And, and you guys uh, managed to get into TechCrunch Disrupt. How cool is that? Yeah, so literally, you know, four or five months after that ex grand experiment I just described as three months, you know, we, we knew people would do this. We we actually had, you know, created the world's first hourly rentable Tesla. Uh, we had gotten a little bit of buzz, a bunch of people trying out, you know, um, I think the early Roadster 2.0 managed to essentially hack our way into TechCrunch Disrupt. And by hack, I mean, we actually applied late. We were they were already full and we managed to convince them to give us a plus one slot. And so they did. And it was actually in New York, even though we were based in, in California and we really wanted to be able to show our product. But the challenge was our product was an app on a phone, but we needed a car to be able to show the magic of pressing a button and seeing, you know, the car immediately unlock and the doors pop open or, the, you know, the, 
the trunk pop open. So we also convinced them that they should allow us to bring a car on stage. And we, you know, took one of the Teslas that was being shared on our platform and managed to convince Tesla to help us ship it to New York and then got everything ready to actually do our pitch. And in the end, it was a scramble. It was definitely, you know, zero sleep for several weeks, but um, we ended up winning the, the TechCrunch Disrupt uh, Challenge. So we won both the, the audience choice and the, the overall competition. So it turned out to be a, a worthwhile endeavor. You know, that really launched us into the limelight. And then we just scrambled to build from there. That's amazing. So I guess for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Get Around? Yeah, we're basically, you know, like an Airbnb for cars. We're a connected car sharing marketplace. So we enable people who have cars to share them with people who, who need them. And we make that super easy by building the hardware and software technology so that you can literally download our app, you know, rent a car, push a button on the phone, open the doors, drive away. You never have to meet anyone. You don't have to go to a rental counter or fill out any paperwork. So really using that connectivity and digital tech transformation, uh, those digital transformation trends to uh, fundamentally bring the idea of car sharing and car rental into uh, the digital world. Very cool. And how much capital, Sam, have you guys raised today? You know, I never remember the answer to that question, but I think it's around $600 million. Around $600 million. And uh, I mean, that's a lot of millions. So I guess... Uh, you know, as you're looking back, you know, whether it's with Get Around and, you know, with the prior ventures also where you raise money, what would you say that has been your biggest lesson around raising money? Yeah, a lot of lessons around raising money. So first, you probably always underestimate how much money you're going to need to raise. So that's probably lesson one. You know, if you asked me 10 years ago, I would not have said $600 million was the target. I think the second one is that, you know, raising money, uh, the thing to realize about that is you can raise money at the best time for the company, meaning at the right inflection point for the company or at the right inflection point in the market. And you know what I've learned there is that when you look at those two things, it's 80% market timing and 20% company timing. So often there are periods where there's, you know, the market is frothy, there's a lot of hype, it's a great fundraising environment. Those may not always line up with the best timing for when the company should raise money, but if you have to choose between the two, you really wanna try and optimize for, for hitting the market window. Uh, ideally, you've got the, the company window lined up, but you know it's just not always going to be the case. But even if you're, the company's not perfect, it's not the exact right time. If there's a good opportunity, you should go and take it. And then the second thing I will say is what I was told when we were raising our seed round, which is if there are cookies on the table, take them. <laughs> you know that's interesting because people are, you know, they're they're all of different school of thoughts. It's either raise all the money that you can get or raise just the money that you need. But I'm right there with you because you don't you can't time the market and you don't know how the market you know may be able to turn around on you. Yeah, you don't. And and a competitor might just get lucky and have the right you know story at the right time in the market. And so um, you know there's there's a lot of dynamics you got to consider. But I, I think like you know there's you're often going to need more money than you think. So if you can get it and it's available on good terms right in front of you, you know you should really consider it. Absolutely. So so today get around. So what's what's how big is get around today for the people that are listening to get a, a good idea? Anything that you can share on numbers, employees or anything? Well, we're about we're in 300 cities globally uh, between the United States and Europe. We have about 6 million registered users and uh, close to 100,000 cars uh, shared on the platform. So you know, we're in all the major metros you might imagine. So here in San Francisco, we're in Los Angeles, New York, Paris, um, London, Oslo, um, you know, so all throughout the United States and Europe. I mean, obviously, you know, we've been talking about envisioning the future, right? And, 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 and trying to see where things are heading. 
Imagine if you were to to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world, Sam, where it's five years later, you know, perhaps, you know, at that point, you guys have been executing like crazy and the vision of Get Around is fully realized. What does that world look like? Ten years ago, we created a vision statement about the world and we said, we believe there will be a world where every car is a shared car. And I think, you know, that's what how that's still true. That's how I would answer this question which is, you know, in five years, every car has native connectivity, you know, much like your phone and your laptop, they have fast internet and are, um, you know, essentially software computing machines on wheels. And that GetAround is integrated with every one of those vehicles, making it super easy for people to share cars, whether you live in a city, whether you live on a cul-de-sac in the suburbs, you know, you can rent your neighbor's pickup truck, you can rent, rent your neighbor's sports car, rent your neighbor's minivan, and everybody can share cars in a way that, you know, we never would have imagined 10 years ago. And just out of curiosity, I mean, do you think that perhaps climate change and, you know, the pollution and, and the consciousness that people are having, you know, like maybe it's going to be something that is going to be another wave that you guys get to ride? I mean, that's been fundamental to our mission for for many years. And I think that uh, people are just becoming increasingly more aware of the fact that, you know, uh, passenger vehicles contribute about a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. And so... With electrification and people sharing, you can really change that in a you know, dramatic, radical way. And so, yeah, 100%. I mean, if people shared cars, we would be on a much more environmentally positive track with respect to that. So it's super critical to our mission to help people, you know, really empower people to car share everywhere and, and really uh, solve for all of the environmental problems that these automobiles create. And, you know, one of the questions that I typically ask the, the guests that come on the show is, if you had the opportunity to go into a time, you know, machine and go back in time, I mean, obviously you've had this incredible journey with all these different ventures, but if you had the opportunity to go back to perhaps, you know, that younger Sam that was in Canada thinking about maybe launching a business, knowing what you know now, if you had the ear of that younger self, what would be that one piece of, well, that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a company and why? I think it would probably be two things. One would be you can do it, right? Um, I think there's a lot of self-doubt and a lot of worry early on when you've, you know, whether you're capable of doing it, whether, you know, how do you do it, what's involved. I think anybody can. You just have to step into it and literally just do it. That'd be one. The second is, you know, I think you really want to chase a passion and commit into something that, you know, you can uh, literally pour your life into. And I think a lot of people try to create or work on small things that are maybe not what they would otherwise believe they can do. They're smaller ideas or just really sort of incremental improvements and changes. It's about as much work to, to work on a big idea as it is to work on a small idea. So you might as well just find something you really believe in that's a big idea and go for it because it's going to, maybe it's 10% more work or 20% more work, but it's not 100% more work. And so, and then, and then stay with it. Right, because building anything that matters takes a long time, and by a long time, it's not one or two years. You know, three, five, ten, fifteen years. I think all the great companies have been around for, you know, one to two decades, and it's so it's a journey and it's a long journey, and you just need to like be willing to, um, you know, think that far out and and have that level of you know develop that level of conviction and really just lean into it. I love it. I love it, Sam. So I guess hey. For the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and, and say hi, Sam? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess probably hit me on uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You, know, you probably have to request me on Instagram, but those are probably the 
the, the, the common ways to get a hold of me. Try me on GitHub, but I don't really respond there as much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good stuff. All right, well, Sam, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.